from AM and FM stations around the country. Welcome to the Small Business Administration award-winning School for Startups Radio, where we talk all things small business and entrepreneurship. Now, here is your host, the guy that believes anyone can be a successful entrepreneur because entrepreneurship is not about creativity, risk, or passion, Jim Beach. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another exciting edition of School for Startups Radio. Very excited to be with you on Friday, the 4th of August. I hope you have a little bit of weekend fun planned as you know, here toward the end of summer. It's amazing to say that my kids start school next week. It just goes so fast. Anyway, we got a fantastic show for you today. First up, Dennis Plotzer is with us. He owns radio stations. I am so excited and proud that this show in some format is on 60 stations around the country. You know, anyone and everyone can have a podcast, but to be old fashioned and to actually have radio makes me really excited. And I feel really, really excited or honored to be on those stations. I, I couldn't be more proud of that group. And Dennis is one of them. And so I'm excited to learn from him. And to ask the ultimate question, is radio dying or is it dead? After that, Larry Harding will be with us. He has built a career helping others get international. And I really relate. I have done the same thing. My first job out of college was working for the Japanese government, an organization called JETRO, J-E-T-R-O which is the Japanese external trade organization or Nippon Boeki Shinkokai designed to help American businesses get into Japan. Now they swing both ways as so many organizations do and help anyone go wherever they want to go. And so it's a great organization. Larry does very similar things, but at a much more massive corporate level. And so I'm excited to learn from him and to uh, be a little bit exposed to that international space again. For a huge part of my life, I thought that was going to be my career and that I would be living all over. And once I lived all over and I lived in Japan for a long time and in Spain and I've traveled and done extensive trips all over the world, I think I'm happy to stay at home a little bit more now anyway. So very excited to also learn the business side of that from Larry, which is always so fascinating next week. Boy, do we have an impressive group. We have a man who has built and sold 20 businesses in a 50 year career. Think about that. Every two and a half years, he is selling a business. And now he is in the give back phase of his career. And so you're going to be blown away by him. Also, I have a walking dead actor next week. Who's been in a bunch of movies and worked with a ton of stars, but on the side is a very successful watch entrepreneur. And so I'm excited for you to meet him next week as well. Just a bunch of great stuff coming up. Appreciate you being with us today. 
And I hope you have a great weekend after you listen to this show. We'll get started in just a second. have any questions or comments or if you need help with your business at any stage from concepts to exit jim accepts all connections on linkedin he tweets from at entrepreneur jim and he responds to emails at james.beach at att.net thanks for listening and we hope you enjoy the show we are back and again thank you so very much for being with us very excited and honored to introduce my first guest today i think i'm going to learn a lot about an industry that i care a lot about Please welcome Dennis Klotzer to the show. He is the owner of a radio network, the Viper Communications. They own five or six stations in the uh, Lake Ozark, Missouri area and in the area around that. Dennis has had a very interesting career in radio and other forms of communication. He has been a host on a radio show several shows and also on a tv show he produced the bob costas sporting news report for several years that must have been absolutely fascinating and has had i think every job you could have at a radio station dennis welcome how you doing hey uh, it's it's great to be with you on uh, this day and uh yeah it did uh, i've done just about everything in radio a person can do is radio dying and we keep hearing this, that it's going to be replaced. What are your thoughts? Well, no, I think radio is very, very strong. It still garners about 90% of all listening in the country. A lot of people say that, oh, I listen to Spotify or I listen to XM radio. Actually, both of those together couldn't equal 5% of the total listening that's done in the country. I had a person tell me that if you took all the subscribers of XM radio uh, and uh, Spotify, you it would only be about the size of New York City. All right. And then financially, how are they doing? Uh, It depends. You know, some of the radio stations uh, that uh, are mismanaged are not doing well. Uh, We've been in radio since, uh, well, the beginning of time. And uh, it, you know, we we know what people want. We give them what they want and the advertisers want to uh, have their message heard in a radio and television station that people are watching and listening to. Okay, great point. What do people want? Does that change from demographic to demographic? You're in a fairly conservative area, I I think. What what is your market demand? Well, our market is, yes, you're right, is very uh, conservative, but we're in a resort area. The Lake of the Ozarks is one of the biggest resort areas in the Midwest. Uh, we have as much shoreline as the uh, state of California, and there's a uh, almost a million-dollar house on every hundred feet of that shoreline. It's quite an amazing place, only one like it in the country. And uh, we are very busy from May until uh, the first part of October. Uh, it's uh, We're like a major city. Um, we, we went from having just three million visitors a summer before COVID to now we have well over 13 million visitors in a summer. So it has gotten extremely busy down here, and the traffic tells the tale. Very interesting. I think most of the country knows 
the Ozarks through some TV shows that have been filmed there. And there are some shows that are about the Ozarks. Is the reputation true? Is it just the biggest party in America? Most, <laughs> most nights. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, it pretty much is. We, uh, we have people that party until the wee hours of the morning and sometimes they, uh, they overdo it on the water. We just had a terrible boat wreck on the water uh, at midnight Saturday night because people were partying too much. We have one place here called Party Cove where there'll be as many as, oh, 4,000 boats all tied up together and people are just uh, going at it all day long. It's, uh, yes, this is a party lake. All right. And how does that change your, your stations? Do you market or advertise differently, do different things because of that? We sure, you know, you, you always cater to uh, the largest segment of your audience. And, uh, in the summertime, that is, uh, that's our audience is the vacationer. People want to know where to go to eat, where to have fun, where to, uh, where the attractions are, what concerts are in town. Uh, they want to know all that. And, uh, you know, because it's a long drive in here and our signals were very strong, we, uh, we capture people about an hour and a half or two hours before they get here uh on the radio and we can pretty much fill their ears with everything that's going on during that period of time yeah billboards how do people know about the stations especially the, the tourists well we uh we advertise on uh, television in st louis and kansas city and other small rural markets around here um on television uh and um we are on a number of apps, uh, and uh, that's how people find us. Uh, we have our, our classic rock station has been number one down here for a little over 20 years. Uh, it's the old 10th oldest FM station in the state of Missouri, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's listened to quite a bit. We just added uh, a television station with 11 channels of programming, and uh, it's amazing how many people are dropping cable and uh, streaming TV to get stuff free over the radio. That's that magic word, free. Everybody likes that. Sure. That is a great selling point. And tell us just the, the basic financial model of a radio station. So we know, for example, Dennis, that a restaurant should make right out a million dollars. If they're doing anything right, it's a third, a third, a third, a third for rent, a third for staff, a third for the food. It's like a, you know, industry-wide formula. Everyone knows it. Is that true? Similarly in radio, is there the same sort of formula at all? Not really, because uh, with radio, you know, we don't have to buy anything to resell it like a restaurant would. Uh, we really, our only expenses are our, our electric bill and our personnel. And uh, you want to invest heavily in personnel because uh, they create your product. They are your creative energy. So you want to invest in that and... Um, you know, they, of course, you always have rent, but, um, you know, and towers are very expensive. Uh, you want to build them if you have to rent them. They're generally generally $2 a foot for every antenna that you put on a tower. So that can be expensive. Right. So is your salaries then 70% or something that high? 
No, the salaries are uh, probably about, uh, well, we work on a um, uh, a 40% profit margin. So all of our expenses are uh, about 60% of the gross revenue. And how much should a good station pull in during a year? Oh, it's at a good station, depending, you know, how many stations you have. But, uh, you know, a, a good station should be grossing somewhere between $1 and $2 million a year. All right. And then is it worth very much to sell? Is there a market? Do they flip around ownership very much? Uh, not really, because uh, most radio stations are owned by mom and pops. There are, uh, well, no, that's not true. I, I shouldn't say that. Most of them are owned by corporations. But in small markets like this one, uh, they're owned by mom and pops. And, then, you know, we use that to uh, to live on. Um, but don't get me wrong. Everything I have is for sale. <laughs> if you wanted to buy some radio and television stations, I'd be glad to get you started. But um, you know, it is, uh, it's very profitable and, uh, it's not very stressful and it can be a lot of fun. You just get your favorite records out and start playing them. What is it legal to play music? I I've heard so many different things. Don't you have to pay for each time you play an album? Yes. Yes. You, uh, the way it works, there are several copyright companies, uh, BMI, ASCAP, CSAC, and now there is uh, a new one for if you stream your music over the internet, you have to pay for every listener that listens to each and every song. It generally figures out to be about 4% of your gross revenue that you pay to those organizations for uh, copyrights. All right. Well, that's not bad. No. Uh, is it the same for Taylor Swift and Metallica, or do they charge differently depending on how popular the act is? No, it has nothing to do with popularity. Uh, it does indeed have to do with um, uh, how many songs you've written, because it, it, part of the money goes to the writer of the song, and now they are paying the artist that made the song popular. Uh, the sad part about it is, is that there's too many writers that have written songs. I, I, an example is one of the guys from Head East uh, wrote all of the songs that Head East made popular. He didn't know he was supposed to get uh, copyright, and um, he was uh, he was not doing very well financially. And a friend came along and got him the money from uh, BMI and ASCAP, CSAC, whatever it was. And started sending him money, and now the guy's living the living the dream. Uh, there's so many artists that uh, write popular songs, and they make a few bucks after it's been a popular song, and then that's it. That's not the way it should work. These these copyright companies should seek out these writers and pay them their due their due uh, uh, worth. Is there any similarity to the? strikes going on in hollywood now it seems like you're fighting over the same issues royalties over time in a changing market i'm sure it's related uh you know the talent is is kind of an invisible product and uh you know it's not like uh, grabbing a candy bar and you know what that candy bar is worth talent is an invisible thing and you know you you 
portray that talent and then it kind of like disappears and it lives only in film and recordings and uh, it's hard to trace it back and uh, get people their due worth uh, and and I think that's the problem after and sag are having and uh, and and writers alike I mean there are you know the people are making millions and millions of dollars and uh, they need to spread the wealth. How'd you get started? How did you move from hourly employee to owner? Big transition. <laughs> well, uh, I'll take it back to uh, when I was 13 years old, my partner in this radio station, who uh, was a guy I met on Citizens Band Radio when we were 13 years old, uh, became good friends. And then we ended up going to high school together. And, and on the weekends, we uh, this was back in 1968 or so. And uh, on the weekends, we would say, hey, let's go travel. We lived in St. Louis at the time. I said, let's go around and see how this radio thing works. You know, let's go visit some radio stations. So that's what we did. And we started, uh, you know, learning about radio. And when I went away to college, I got a job at uh, in southeast Missouri State at a local radio station. And then in St. Louis at a local radio station, empty in trash cans or something, whatever I did. And then uh, my partner, Ken, decided, you know, I think we should be able to... Uh, uh, maybe own a radio station, let's apply to the Federal Communications Commission and see if they'll give us a license. So we did. And um, and <laughs> out of the craziness of the Federal Communications Commission, they issued two 22-year-olds a license for a radio station in Eldon, Missouri. But we had no money, so we had to find a partner. We found a partner to uh, give us some money, and we built that radio station ran it for several years, and then sold it for a, a pretty good sum. And that's what we did uh, probably for the next 20, 30 years. We went around the whole Midwest and built radio stations, operated them, and then spun them off, uh, flipped them. And, uh, and now we're down to four radio stations here at the Lake of the Ozarks and one television station with 11 channels. And... Uh, We've had stations as far away as Florida, and uh, I worked for the CBS radio network uh, during the time we owned all the radio stations. I was the voice of uh, CBS Sports, uh, the promo voice, and worked out at KMOX in St. Louis. And um, and then I just got tired of corporate radio and just said, you know, I'm making these guys millions of dollars. I think I'm going to go down and to the stations I own and uh, do it for myself, and that's kind of the story. It's a pretty impressive one, Dennis. Uh, I love 22-year-olds going out and doing things like that. That's uh, amazing. Yeah, you know, the other day I was at a social agreement, a social gathering of local people here, and there were two young men that were 22 years old. One started a spray foam insulation company, and the other one started a web thing. And I went over and I shook their hands and I said, you know, I'm you. <laughs> I, I, I've been where you are. And these kids had the drive, like Ken and I had the drive, and uh, it was a uh, beautiful experience to sit there and share their drive with them. And that's what it takes. It takes you know, drive and, and determination to be a success and to uh, pour everything you have and learn, 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 listen, 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 and talk to people and, and, and 
dig into their minds and see what they do and how they did it, and uh, then use that as your model for growing. Great advice, Dennis. Great advice. There's some 15,000 roughly radio stations. How many do you think are owned by the big, big guys? Um, you know, I think I, the last I heard was about 11,000. And the I rest think. are owned by mom and pop? Pretty much, or small groups like Town Square and, and uh, little bitty groups, Alpha Media. They, they own like 50, 60 stations. And, um, and mom and pops, uh, you know, they own maybe six stations. And so, and you'll find them in, in generally small and medium markets. I look at Springfield, Missouri, uh, not far from here, and just about every one of the radio stations is owned by a big group there. But you go to another town like uh, Columbia, Missouri, and half of them are owned by uh, Cumulus, which is a big radio, very big radio group, and the other is owned by uh, some brothers. So, uh, you know, it, it depends. And most of them are in small markets that, um, uh, that are easily managed by a mom and pop. Right. And you would have to think that that group is aging out. That- yeah, pretty much. Uh, pretty much they are. And that's why some of the big groups are buying up uh, these smaller town radio stations because they are very, very profitable. Uh, they're easily managed because mom and pop uh, made them very efficient because they didn't want to work very hard. And, uh, you know, they they uh, they find them very beneficial uh, to, to own because it only takes one or two people to really manage them. And uh, the big uh, corporations have staffs of engineers that can fly in and fix the transmitter when it gets sick. Right. And are they actually, I don't know, is there uh, a marketplace for them or is Cumulus just going to end up buying all of them? Well, I don't think they will. Um, I think that Cumulus and iHeart and and Intercom and all those people, I think they are pretty much at their their uh, their peak. And what they have been doing, which I don't really approve of, is uh, they've been setting up hubs due to the beautifulness of, if that's a word, uh, of computers. They've set up hubs and they put like 10 disc jockeys in like Des Moines. And they, you'll hear those same disc jockeys on 100 radio stations. They, for, they, they record their voice tracks and send them all over the country, thereby cutting down their staff numbers and, um, and, and being able to hire really good people, too. There's an upside to it. And, um, and you know, I think that they have, they have overextended themselves because they're finding out that the people in the local communities are really clamoring for that local, local local feel. I want to know what's going on. And I want you to say, hey, it's a sunny day today. Looks like a high around 72. Oh, it's just started raining, you know, or something. They want to have that local feel there. And uh, it's pretty hard to do when you record the, uh, the voice tracks two or three days in advance. The only thing my grandmother wanted every morning was to hear who died. And the first thing she did was turn on the radio to a local station in the middle of nowhere in Virginia that ran the obituaries. 
probably out of Mount Airy, North Carolina, where, uh, what was the show that was based there? Andy Griffith show, of course. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. And, and she knew it was so funny. She was all a fret one morning and called us because the normal guy who announced the obituaries didn't announce the obituaries. So of course that meant he was dead now. Yep. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and the new catchphrase now is live and local. Uh, and that's, that kind of means that when you listen to a station saying we're live and we're local means there's actually a human being sitting at the control board talking to you live. And, um, and, and that really has a, an attractive flavor for the listener because you're right there with them. You're experiencing the day right there with them and listening to the music right there with them. You're not recording this voice track and playing it back, uh, you know, days later. Is there any difference between AM and FM? Uh, Only in content. Uh, AM stations have generally started to be just talk stations because of the bandwidth issues. Uh, It's, uh, you know, you can't tell the difference in fidelity when somebody's talking between AM and FM. Uh, You really only tell the difference in... um, uh, in, in, uh, on music, but, uh, difference in, you know, you know, there's, there's, yes, there are differences. Uh, AM radio stations are go further, uh, than FM stations generally given the same power. And, um, they uh, can cover a lot of rural areas and hilly areas that, uh, FM stations can't. Well, that's true around here. We rely on the AM for the traffic and weather and it goes, the signal goes a lot further, except at night. Well, why can't signals go at night, Dennis? What's up with darkness and radio? Well, what happens is uh, at night, the atmosphere changes and signals of AM stations uh, seem to travel up to the, uh, to the ionosphere and then come down. Um, they, during the day, the signals stay s- snug to the ground. And at night when they go up, you lose the signal on the ground. But what happens is that the other station 400 miles away, its signal is going up to the ionosphere and bouncing down in your backyard and interfering with your local station. And that's kind of uh, a general ex- explanation of it. You just get a little more interference at night because the signals are bouncing all over everywhere off of the ionosphere. And what about cars not having radio station or radios at all anymore? Uh, Tesla doesn't put a radio in their car at all. Does this concern you? Uh, that won't go very far. Uh, that, you know, people, people need their radio. Uh, they, they need to be connected. You know, and a, a, a good example of this is people that uh, went to XM radio and started listening to XM radio. Those people are generally travelers. They travel across the country and they want to hear the same station. But when you're a local person and you're listening in your local community, you get pretty bored by never hearing anything that's going on in the place that you live where you spend 90% of your time. So I think that, uh, you know, the Tesla is 
not really uh, seeing reality. Uh, they they have been putting FM stations in their cars, but uh, they don't want to put AM stations in it because it, the electric engines uh, interfere with that signal. What's Bob Costas really like? He is uh, a genius. Um, I can remember uh, many times producing his show, and we'd be sitting in the studio and uh, we would do these, uh, we would do a sports flashback, and that was a highlight of, let's say, uh, the Giants winning the pennant. And uh, he would be on the other side of the glass for me, and uh, he would say, okay, uh, my radio name was Casey Van Allen and back in those days. And he'd say, uh, Casey, uh, what, uh, what we got here? And I'd say, uh, Giants win the pennant in whatever year. And he would, he would look down, and he would shake his head a couple of times without, now he had no copy. No copy was ever written for him. He would shake his head a couple of times. And then when he would look up at me, um, I better be rolling tape. And he'd say, hello again, everybody. Bob Cox with a sporting news reporter, sports flashback, back in such and such and such and such. We'll have the story in a second. And this guy would do this two-minute feature with a highlight in it and walk the clock right up to two minutes with the length of the feature and never stutter, never drop a word, and it was completely understandable. One of the most amazing sports guys I have ever known. As a matter of fact, I think he's got a photographic memory. A couple of times he said that he could remember a base or a basketball game from Syracuse, where he's from. Uh, that <laughs> he could remember how many uh, how many baskets some players made. I, and the guy is absolutely genius level. Wow, Dennis! How do we find out more about you? Follow you online? Visit Lake Ozarks. Uh, well, you know, if you're interested in the Lake of the Ozarks, a great place to check out is funlake.com. Uh, if you want to know more about my radio stations, you can uh, just go to krmsradio.com, and uh, you can check out all the stations we have there, including one in Hawaii, and um, and see what we've got, and uh, take a look at our television stations, and uh, listen uh, to one of our radio stations to give you a feel of being at the Lake of the Ozarks on one of the biggest bodies of water that parties like there's no tomorrow. I love it. Dennis, thank you so much. Great stuff, and enjoy the rest of the summer. I will do just that. Thank you. And we will be right back. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a wonderful question, actually, Jim. Oh, my gosh. I love the opportunity to do this. Thank you, Jim. Wow, that's, that's, a, that's a great one. You know, that is a phenomenal question. That's a great question, and, and I don't have a great answer. It, that's a great question. Oh, that is such a loaded question. And that's actually a really good question. School for Startups Radio. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us. I'm very excited to introduce another great story. Please welcome Larry Harding to the show. He is the founder and CEO of HSP Group. They are in the global expansion space, and we will learn a lot about that. Say you have an office in Spain and you've 
you know, want to come into the United States. I think they help you do that, but we will find out. He has been in this industry for quite a while. Previous to this, he founded a company that was in the same space and he was able to grow it and sell it. And it's now part of another company. Larry, welcome. How are you doing? Jim, I'm doing great. Thank you very much. Nice to be here. So did I get it right? I want to grow into Europe. I need your help. And you help me with all the HR and getting office. Am I getting close? Uh, you're, you're super close. Yes, I can. Uh, I can fill in some of the blanks. So HSP, HSP group exists to help companies deal successfully with expanding overseas and managing their global footprint. So one of the business realities is, you know, a U.S. company goes into Poland or into Australia you know, to, to sell to new markets, or maybe they want to hire talent there, or they want to, you know, cost savings, whatever reason they're going overseas, none of them have to do with wanting to be in tax compliance and, uh, and open up bank accounts. So all, people go overseas for reasons that uh, are interesting to them and, and create value for the business, but a whole bunch of other things need to happen and they need to be on top of them. And so HSP exists to make sure that our customers know what they don't know uh, and have a turnkey solution for having all of those things taken care of for them. What would be the bottom end of the size business that you would work with? So we, we sort of focus and specialize on the middle market. Uh, and that includes companies that are not even yet middle market, but have good growth plans to get there. So, you know, working with a U.S. company on their first step outside of the U.S. Uh, can be a great customer opportunity for us and we can provide a ton of value for them. Um, we love to help companies with their, their initial expansion overseas, even more so than maybe inheriting something that's been a mess or hasn't been paid attention to. That's just a little bit more of a painful engagement. We get plenty of those, but we love to be the initial folks helping our companies go outside the U.S. Are they services or products? So we are a tech-enabled service business. So we provide a whole bunch of uh, specific services, people, you know, doing things that need to be done. However, in parallel, we've developed some uh, great technologies, a good technology platform and related applications to really help automate as many of those different things that need to happen and provide a level of clarity and consistency. So tech-enabled services is probably the best way to describe us. All right. And... Where's the hard place to go and what's an easy place to go? What makes the difference? Uh, great question. There tend to be hard places and easy places. So for a U.S. company, you know, going into the U.K. Uh, or Ireland can be super easy. There's, there are no language challenges. You know, from the East Coast, it's a five-hour difference, so not a crazy time difference. Um, you know, they, they've sort of set up, uh, their infrastructure in those countries to make it really easy to, you know, start something new and expand and hire people. Um, so there are a bunch of easy countries. Singapore is on that list. Uh, Australia can be on that list. Uh, and then there are markets that are, you know, equally great to expand into, but they can be notoriously challenging and complex. So, you know, Brazil and India, China come immediately to mind as really places that can be extremely complicated to go into. Um, and I think the trend, interestingly, is it's getting a little bit harder that versus easier. And that's recent over the last year. I'm there's sorry. probably a 20-year run. Yeah, yeah. there's probably a 20-year run where going overseas was becoming easier. Uh, you know, laws and regulations were becoming more streamlined. 
what we've actually seen over the last five to eight years is sort of a reversal in that direction, a little bit more, you know, protectionism, uh, a little bit more of a focus on sort of protecting employment. Um, so the hurdles have actually gotten a little bit higher in most places, which is an interesting sort of uh, unexpected trend. Most places that I go are going to require a certain percentage of local hire. Uh, what is that number? Am I going to be required to have 90% low or what? Are, what are well, so yeah, how that, how that works is, um, you know, if you set up something overseas, you can hire locally, you know, however you can find the talent and, and put them on employment regulations and do so in a locally compliant way uh, to the degree you want to, you know, send an expat over to a foreign location outside the U S that's where it becomes complicated. The restrictions arise, you know, you need to get a work visa approved by the local government. Um, you need to, you know, take care of the different tax filings that are a lot more complicated for an expat versus a local. So the rules are in place to make it easier to hire locally uh, and more difficult. And then some places, you know, you can't get a work visa. It's, it'll, it'll be impossible. So uh, that, that's sort of how the local tend to manage that issue. But even if you're an expat sent there to manage, do they have that kind of position available in a market like that? Um, they, many, many in most countries can, um, but it's not like turning a light switch. So you, you tend to have to, you know, put a, a few months uh, of notice in, you got to get the application prepared, approved. You got to react to different pushbacks that can often happen. Um, you know, a bunch of things can take a good amount of time. Some countries can be a little bit quicker and more streamlined than others. Um, but as with all things global expansion related, you know, the, the more, the more of a lead time you allow yourself for the project to have a successful conclusion, uh, the better off you are. And that certainly includes, uh, global mobility and expats. Right. I used to work for the Japanese government, helping Americans expand into Japan Maybe you've heard of Jetro. Uh, I have. Yep, absolutely. And that was a really interesting, fun job. Seems like it's switched, though, that they're now more interested in helping Japanese here. And it seems like that goes back and forth every, as you said, 20 years or so. Right now, mm -hmm. is America contracting or expanding across the globe? And uh, yeah, okay. the, the vice versa happening, are we in America welcoming more direct investment or less? Uh, so global expansion is uh, growing. It's increasing, you know, between six and 12% a year, uh, depending on various metrics. So foreign direct investment, global expansion is uh, absolutely growing both, you know, U.S. outbound and the rest of the world coming into the U.S., um, you know, and that, you know, we, we, we've had some economic turbulence with inflation and different things like that. So, but that trend has continued on, um, throughout the whole continuum. Um, having said that, you know, we, we have here in the U S we have uh, made it a little bit harder, uh, for folks to expand here. Um, you know, it's, it's harder to get a work visa nowadays than it was five years ago for example. Um, so, you know, even in the U S we've, we've tended to make it a little bit more difficult to facilitate that. However, you know, the, the, the tide is, is such that it's still coming in at a, at a growing rate, even though we've, we've erected some hurdles that uh, are higher than they were before. 
And what about China? I don't know that I would really be excited about going there now. Yeah, that's super interesting. So I've been doing this for 20 years and, and probably for the first 10 years of doing it. So 2003 up through the, the mid aughts, I guess. Um, uh, it was, it was, uh, China was always one, two or three on the list of uh, locations where U.S. companies were expanding into. That has almost totally turned around 180 degrees. Um, you know, China, if we have handfuls of customers we're helping in China, it's not more than that. Uh, you know, so it's, it's way down on the list and certainly compared to where it used to be. Companies leaving China at all? Um, you know, I see, I see less of that, you know, what we do wouldn't tend to see a ton of that. What we tend to see is, you know, how many companies are newly going there. And, uh, and that's, what's really totally changed. It, it just, there are no new expansion into China projects to be found. Right. I think it's the legal system that is the biggest hindrance. Your thoughts on China? Uh, you know, I think, I think, uh, it, it is a complicated, complex, costly place to go. So, but that's been, it, that hasn't really changed too much from what it was 15 years ago. I think it's more, you know, a risk assessment with how significant the upside and the opportunity is going to be, you know, 15 years ago, oh my goodness, you know, if you have a viable technology or, or service or anything here in the U S market, multiply it by 10. And that's what you have as a total addressable market in China. They're growing middle class and all the growth and everything like that. Um, lately, that's turned out not to be the case. Certainly the, the COVID lockdowns really shut down the growth of that market. Um, you know, there's been some bad PR in terms of the risks related to expanding into China. So it's a, it's a little bit more of, um, you know, uh, a little bit of a scarlet letter to some degree, certainly than it was before. So there's that issue probably takes place. Um, and it just, it, it, there, there are other places where it's easier to go with a more clear upside and, you know, pragmatic business people who have scarce investment resources to pick their places, you know, are just a less inclined to pick that, uh, trickier market. What's the hardest finance, marketing, operations, HR, culture, the the hardest issue for a U.S. company um, on of the those items on the list. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, you know what what do you deal with the most? Culture issues, HR issues. Uh, I would say uh, culture issues less so. Um, you know, to an interesting degree. Yeah, the cultural differences are huge, um, but there is such a westernization that exists. You know, including markets like China and India. Um, you know, the cultural issues are, are more easily navigated these days. The world has definitely become flatter from that perspective. Um, I think two areas where the, the complexity is tends to be the highest is, uh, you know, the HR employment area, um, you know, employment and, and, you know, protection is, is trending upward. So the different rules and regulations that you need to be on top of or that you can run afoul of um, are, tend to be more complicated. So those are always tricky. Uh, it's very it's challenging for a U.S. company where employment at will is sort of how we have our employment structures. The rest of the world is not like that. It exists under an employment contract. The uh, requirements tend to be much more definitively stipulated than we're used to. So we always, uh, U.S. people tend to generally under, um, under worry about what the complexities are to hiring anybody in any overseas market. 
Uh, and then, you know, the tax and compliance issues, just understanding what um, the different tax regulations are, what the filing requirements need to be stayed on top of, um, you know, how easy you can run afoul of, you know, not doing things the right way and find yourself with a, you know, unknown tax liability that can become, you know, pretty big numbers pretty quickly. Um, those are the two areas I think that tend to be the hardest. You mentioned one of the number one phrases in international or just the the book, I guess, the world is flat. Is mm -hmm. it? I've always liked the, I don't remember who said this, but said it's pretty flat, but it's got a lot of big spikes in it in a lot of <laughs> places. It's spiking. What yes. So that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's totally accurate. Um, you know, Thomas Friedman made the, made the, the world is flat term famous. And I think that was sort of uttered back in the 2005, 2006 frame. It, the analogy to, to sort of the, you know, global, globally flattening world is almost like the similar analogy back when uh, the Iron Curtain fell and, and everybody just sort of assumed that, oh my goodness, Eastern Europe and Russia are going to be you know, rushing over and embracing capitalism and democracy. And, you know, there's never going to be any more conflicts. There's sort of an expectation of what could and should happen. Um, when, when Thomas Friedman was looking at the world as flat, that was when, you know, technology and all of the advances made it so much, you know, super easier to be able to conduct business overseas and cultural differences, you know, begin to wane and things like that. So the world should have been flat um, and it has definitely become flatter, but just like with the Iron Curtain, you know, humans are humans. And then, you know, people tend to dig in their heels and not want to change. And um, so I think since, uh, since Thomas Friedman made that phrase famous, uh, I think what we've kind of frustratingly found is it's not as flat as we'd love it to be. And it probably could have been. How early in my business evolution should I try to start, you know, developing some international customers? And then where should I be when I actually think about hiring you to, you know, create an office there to maybe satisfy some of the customers I already have. Is that a, a fair assessment? That yeah, it is. So we, we do a lot of work with venture capital backed, uh, you know, startups and technology companies. So, you know, they're very focused on how do you build a great business, turn a great idea into a great business uh, and build value for the shareholders and the founders and all of the different stakeholders. So the way to think about global expansion can tend to be best thought of is if you have a viable market and a good idea, good opportunity in the U.S. domestic market, you probably have also a similar opportunity um, somewhere or everywhere outside of the U.S. So just in terms of a value creation opportunity, um, you almost owe it to your founders and your shareholders and your employees and everybody else involved to, you know, constantly think, how, how do you, how do you grow a business that's a great business, uh, creating as much value as, as possible. So having, you know, thinking about global expansion is something that probably every founding team and entrepreneur should have somewhere in the back of their minds from at least a consideration perspective. Um, you know, I probably wouldn't recommend, putting chips overseas until you sort of um, get some momentum in the, in the U S market, you know, make sure that there actually are customers for the idea making sure it's commercially viable, that you can make money on it. Um, but once you begin to sort of turn the, uh, the theory into reality in the, in the domestic market, to me, there's no reason not to sort of think about, okay, where else could this uh, successfully expand into and how would we go about doing that? All right. 
What's your favorite U.S. mess-up story for international expansion? You know, there's some just classic ones. The Chevrolet Nova trying to be sold (laughs) in Latin American companies or countries. There's the chopsticks stuck straight down into a bowl of rice for an American (laughs) airline, which, of course, symbolizes death in a lot of Asia. Can you think of any good ones, Larry, to throw in the mix? I mean, there, there are a handful of, of just sort of business mistakes, not, not sort of, you know, pop cultural, you know, almost humorous, like, like what you enumerated there. But, you know, sometimes we get called in to put out a fire or solve a problem. Uh, we were working with a university one time that had somebody working in Paris for, I don't know, 25, 30 years, and they had never really looked at doing so in a compliant way. And now this person, this professor wanted to retire and just live in France. And because they hadn't figured out how to um, have the employment structure set up properly, there was no um, uh, social security equivalent. So, you know, there was no means for this, this gentleman or his family to sort of live in Paris, live in France and, and get paid what a, what a retiring person who's been in France for 30 years would expect to be paid. And they're like, Hey, can you solve this problem? And, I had to tell them actually there's no way there's no way to solve this problem this is a this is a really big miss and um sometimes things aren't aren't easily solvable so you know there there was that there was uh, my own experience in dinner at uh, sort of early on in my time spent in japan and you'll probably know this from your jetro time better than i did and uh the sake was flowing and i you know happily poured a glass of sake for the young 20 something, you know, staff person who was sitting next to me with the partner that we were working with. And he was horrified because, you know, for that, it it needs to be sort of, he needs to be pouring the sake for me as a guest and as a more senior person. So having that go the other direction in a professional dinner was just taboo. You know, all I could do was apologize, but um, you tend to run into cultural things like that from time to time. And it's, it's uh, always nice and important to try and be on top of those, especially in a professional setting. How do you learn those Larry? How do you get them? How do you find out about that in advance so you don't make a mistake? First time well, I went hopefully. to Spain, I was 14. <laughs> I was let out with some other 14-year-olds, and they were doing the dos besos, and I didn't know that, and I just flat-out kissed the girl. <laughs> um, well, the best way to learn is the school of hard knocks. You, you, you make a mistake the first time, and you don't make a mistake the second time. Um, or you listen to people who've made the mistake, and you don't repeat it. Uh, but they're, you know... All kidding aside, there are, you know, there are handbooks there, you know, if, if, if you're willing, like anything else, if you're willing to put a little bit of time and effort and sort of prepare yourself to be successful in a, in a you know, setting like that, you know, there are top 20 things to be mindful of. And, you know, it's almost similar to learning a, a local phrase, even if you don't speak the local language. Um, people appreciate the effort. Um, and if, you know, if you're not perfect, there's a great understanding that that's probably unlikely but the effort is super appreciated. Um, and that's, that's a great rule of thumb to keep in mind. Where is the, your favorite place that you have visited and where do you really desperately want to go? Um, I, I have a ton of favorite places. So I've spent, you know, I can't even imagine how many trips I've made over to London. I have, you know, so many great experiences and good friendships uh, over in the UK and London. So that's always, you know, in many ways that feels like I've been going home whenever I visit. Uh, I've loved my spending my time in Tokyo, Hong Kong, 
uh, you know, Europe, Barcelona, where we have a large office here now, uh, Madrid, Italy. I mean, you know, the, the places I love going to is, uh, is, is much, much bigger than places I don't generally love that much. Um, you know, I haven't spent as much time in Eastern Europe as I'd like to. So, you know, I've never actually been to Prague or Budapest. Uh, and, and so I need to sort of expand into my, my travels into, into that region. Um, I've had the great opportunity to be in, in many, many different places. And generally, I really like aspects to all of them. Has Hong Kong changed as it's reverted back to the Chinese? Have you noticed any difference? You know, I haven't been to China um, in probably five years. You know, there, there haven't been the compelling business reasons that would take me there. Um, I have been to Hong Kong, and and uh, that that saddens me. Um, you know, Hong Kong was such a commercially vibrant place, and it still is. Um, but it is it it is more tightly controlled, and you know, the the whole. Uh, sort of exuberance, commercial exuberance that was defining of that, that city and that place um, is less so a uh, little bit, little bit unhappier, a little bit harder. So that, that pains me a bit. Um, you know, that's, that's just the, the, you know, the way things have gone. Larry, great advice. Amazing business. Very, very interesting. I'm sure a lot of our listeners are jealous. How do they find out more about you? Follow you online, all of that, please. Um, so we tend to be pretty active on things like LinkedIn. Um, you know, we always have a lot of updates. Our, our website, hsp.com, uh, we try and keep pretty current and relevant. Um, any of your listeners, you know, uh, I'm, I'm pretty easy to reach on LinkedIn and uh, love to connect with people and, you know, uh, speak directly and see how we can be of assistance. Fantastic. Larry, thank you so very much. How many uh, miles do you have? <laughs> I don't even want to be I can tell you is that my frequent flyer miles rarely get used on myself because I've traveled enough so usually try and uh, use them as gifts for other people to have the great opportunity to explore places that I've had very nice of you we're out of time for today but we are back tomorrow be safe everyone thanks for listening take care have a great day bye now